Welcome to the 367th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome writer and political analyst Nanjala Niabala to COVID Calls. She's the author of Traveling While Black, Essays Inspired by a Life on the Move. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. Today is a special COVID Calls at 7 p.m. Korea time. You can hear COVID calls anytime, recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, October 29th, 2021, there are 4,982,198 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. The nation of Kenya reports 5,270 deaths from COVID-19. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that reading now. The headline is, Illinois family pleads with vaccine skeptics after fully vaxxed grandmother dies at 66. Our worst fears came true. It was written by Manny Ramos and appeared in the Chicago Sun-Times. Springfield family is pleading for vaccine skeptics to get the jab after their beloved matriarch, who was vaccinated but immunocompromised, died of COVID-19 last month. We did everything we were supposed to, Mark Ayers said. We listened to the experts, socially distanced ourselves, wore masks, got vaccinated, and we are left dealing with the loss of our mother because others refused to do the same. Mark Ayers' mother, 66-year-old Candace Ayers, died at HSHS St. John's Hospital in Springfield after a month-long fight with COVID-19. The grandmother who loved spending time with her daughter's triplets is believed to have caught the disease while visiting a family friend in Mississippi. She's one of more than nearly 600 fully vaccinated people in Illinois to die of COVID this year, including 278 in September. About 53% of those, like Ayers, had an underlying health condition or were immunocompromised, while 87% are over 65, state data shows. Mark Ayers said he was worried when his parents wanted to visit the wife of a friend who died of a heart issue that was exacerbated by COVID-19. More breakthrough COVID infections means more people could be mildly infected and not know it. We were very nervous about sending her because it was Mississippi, but my mother's doctor cleared her to travel, saying as long as she was vaccinated, there isn't a concern, he said. We should have gotten a second opinion. The concern for his mother wasn't just because of her age, but because of her rheumatoid arthritis and autoimmune disease. In mid-July, Mississippi was at the beginning of a surge of positive COVID-19 cases, with the arrival of the Delta variant reaching a higher number of daily cases than it had for the entire pandemic thus far. This was also happening as Mississippi's Republican Governor Tate Reeves called federal recommendations for people to wear masks indoors, quote, foolish and quote-unquote harmful. 
My parents were only in Mississippi for four days, and on the car ride back, my mother was already having full-blown COVID symptoms, Mark Ayers said. When they got home, Ayers and his sister didn't think it could be COVID-19. After all, they were vaccinated. But as the days went on, her symptoms got worse, Mark Ayers said. On July 28th, our worst fears came true, and she tested positive, and she wasn't getting any better. She was taken to the nearest hospital in Springfield, where she was given some antibiotics and sent home. In early August, she was taken back to the emergency room where she was finally admitted. Her condition would only worsen over the next three weeks. She was placed on an oxygen mask, had a blood transfusion, and was eventually put on a ventilator. It all was just too much for her body to handle, Mark Ayers said. We made the decision to put her in comfort care and wanted to let her go as peacefully as possible. She died in early September. Family was devastated and angry. They wanted to call out those who politicized the pandemic and were refusing to take it seriously. So Amanda Ayers, Mark Ayers' sister and Candace Ayers' daughter, penned an obituary that was published in the State Journal Register. Quoting from this here, from the obituary here, she was preceded in death by more than 4,531,799 others infected with COVID. The obituary read, she was vaccinated but was infected by others who chose not to be. The cost was her life. The goal was to send a message to not only the people they knew, but to the entire country, Mark Ayers said. He wanted to send this message home that it is the unvaccinated and the unmasked in this country that are largely responsible for where we are today, not just with our family, but as a country, he said. The CDC has said the Delta variant is twice as contagious as previous variants of COVID-19 and unvaccinated people are at the greatest risk of transmission. However, even fully vaccinated immunocompromised people are particularly vulnerable to breakthrough cases. Limiting their exposure to COVID is why public health officials push wide-scale inoculations for the entire population. That herd immunity would also help protect others who make up the small percentage of people that vaccines don't work for. We're seeing a segment of the population not only refusing to be vaccinated, but making this a political issue, or at worst, calling it a hoax that's only downplaying the significance of this disease, Mark Ayers said. Then, when the FDA approved a vaccine, people are refusing to take it because of political reasons, thinking this pandemic is a joke. More importantly, he said, he wants immunocompromised people and their families to take extreme caution when they're thinking about venturing outside their bubbles. I wish someone had expressed that caution for us, and it's a mistake we have to live with for the rest of our lives with not having a mother, he said. headline was, Illinois family pleads with vaccine skeptics after fully vaxxed grandmother dies at 66. Our worst fears came true by Manny Ramos in the Chicago Sun-Times. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today, one I've really been looking forward to, and let me introduce my guest, Nanjala Niabala. Angela Niabla is a writer and researcher based in Nairobi, Kenya. Her work focuses on the intersection between technology, media, and society. In addition to academic writing, she writes analysis and commentary for numerous publications around the world and is the author of Digital Democracy, Analog Politics, How the Internet Era is Transforming Politics in Kenya, which appeared with Zed Books in 2018, and Traveling While Black, Essays Inspired by a Life on the Move, which appeared 
just last year in 2020 with Hearst Books. Nanjala Niabala, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start the way I generally do, just find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic's looking like. Um, I'm in Nairobi. Um, the weather is finally turning, so it's getting a little bit warmer, um, which is good. Uh, the the COVID situation official is in Nairobi. You have to, I guess, make a distinction between the official statistics and what the general feeling is in the community. Um, officially, we've turned a corner after the third wave. I think the worst um, case positivity rate we had between March and July was 17% or just under 18%. So it was really dire for a couple of weeks. Um, it seemed like we were about to hit the big one, the big wave that was that everybody had been holding their breath um, against. And then right now, I think it's less than 2%. So that's the official numbers. Um, and that's part of the reason why some of the um, measures that were taken to slow down the pandemic have been lifted. So the curfew was lifted last week. And um, well, to be honest, that's probably the only thing that was left. A lot of the things had been sort of falling away as the economic pressure, the political pressure kind of grew. So the feeling is that the pandemic has, um, the wave has passed. There's a lot more people getting vaccinated. Um, there's a lot more people who are aware of the disease and who are responding to um, the public health measures. And people are generally more conscious of COVID today than they were um, you know, this time last year. And so I would say that it does feel like we've turned a corner with the wave. Um, it does, but the, you know, there's still, the hospitals are still full and um, there's still a number of cases that we're getting every day. So, yeah. And have you been in lockdown at once or multiple junctures throughout the mm -hmm. pandemic? Multiple junctures. Um, the curfew has been pretty much consistent since March of 2020. I think there was only a brief window of time when we didn't have a curfew of about four or five weeks. So pretty much since March 2020, we've been under some kind of curfew. The worst lockdown was between April 2020 and July 2020, when there was an almost complete, um, the language that they use here is secession of movement. So no uh, public transit uh, circulating or limited public transit circulating, no traveling in between counties. We have 47 counties, so we weren't allowed to move between the counties. Um, and uh, closure of churches, closure of uh, mosques, all of the sites of gathering at schools. Schools were closed for most of, the la of last year. So the worst of it was in April through July of last year. Since then, it's kind of been um, the measures getting less and less strict over time but there being some kind of baseline, which was the curfew, was that between um, 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. all over the country, there not being any, you're not allowed to be circulating basically. Um, and then we have also had regional lockdowns. So the, the pandemic has been very regionalized um, in Kenya in that it's been very urban, peri-urban. So all of the major towns have had at some point, some kind of restriction of movement, restriction on uh, gathering, uh, Nairobi every cycle, obviously, because Nairobi has been the hardest hit. And has the government provided some measure of financial support for those who've been in lockdown and unable to work? No, <laughs> it's, it's part of the reason why there's so much pressure for things to reopen. So there was at the very beginning some efforts with 
the uh, especially with foreign donors in informal settlements to keep people at home. There was some measure where um, some governments were doing, uh, you know, we have the mobile money, the, the money that, you know, it's very easy to centralize to distribute money to people's phone numbers. So the very first lockdown, there was some ad hoc measures with various donors to give money to people in informal settlements only because the anxiety was that because of the housing conditions, this is where the pandemic, if it's going to break out, this is where it's going to be really bad. Um, you know, people living in close quarters, poor ventilation, um, and and not really having any access to routine healthcare the way that you would, ex- you would want it to be. So in the beginning, there was some of that. It was not systemic, it was not widespread, um, and it was not sustainable because the government was depending on other people to provide the funding for that because the Kenya government's broke. Um, since then, I know, and that's, you know, people at some point stopped really staying home. Like the only measures that people have somewhat stuck to has been the curfew. And even that, um, it has been very classed. So, you know, wealthier people have been navigate, uh, you know, circumventing the curfew for the longest time, uh, nightclubs locking people in so that people, um, you know, don't go home during the curfew times they go home oh, at six right. in the morning. Um, and poor people have borne the brunt of the policing measures, you know, arbitrary arrests and detention, killings. I mean, that's been the policing of the curfew has been very classed. So that's that's the the discrepancy that the measures have been there. Adherence has been steadily dwindling broadly, but I would say even and it and I and that big reason for that is the economic anxiety. A lot of people just can't stay home. Um, if you're a day laborer and sure. you're dependent on that one one and a half dollars a day, you're not going to be able to stay home um, indefinitely. So, and what about for you? It, I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing a, a memory or something that really resonates for you personally about this time. Um. You know, I'm incredibly privileged because I've been working from home since 2017. The big hit for me has been the inability to travel. So I didn't travel for about a year and a bit. Um, And I feel like it's, you know, it's, it wasn't a huge adjustment for me to, to work from home and you know, and you're an introvert and people say all the parties are canceled, you're like, yay. (laughs) Um, I think the big thing that really sticks out is because of the way Nairobi is, you know, the, the zoning laws are very poorly enforced. And so you would have like bars and clubs, you know, I have a bar near where I live and hearing the inequality is going to be the enduring memory for me because you will read the news about a poor young man or woman who was coming home from work um, and just got caught up in traffic and didn't make it home on time and ended up in jail or ended up dead. You know, um, we had two young university students who were shot down by the police. And reading that news while hearing a nightclub with luxury cars parked out front uh, and knowing that those people are gonna be locked up uh, in that club overnight, you know, breaking every rules, watching the politicians having their rallies, gathering thousands and thousands of people while killing people, you know, for you know having a birthday, arresting people for having a birthday party, for going to a birthday, like 
the enduring experience for me at, in Nairobi is going to be this recollection of how brazen the inequality in this town has become and how it has become ingrained in the way that we think about illness and disease and responding to it. Because all of the rumors about this being a great equalizer have come to naught. It's, it's completely unfounded. If anything, it's just made the inequality much more stark. And, and that's going to be my enduring memory of this period. Well, you've been vocal uh, on this issue. I just want to read a, a couple of sentences from an article that you published in in August in the New Internationalist. And the context of that time wasn't that long ago, but it was um, you know a period of a rising wave. And, and in this piece, you're talking about the concern um, that Kenya might go the way of India, which was really suffering at that time. I'm going to read a couple of sentences. This is really strong. Individual and community level action, you write, has saved Kenya from a far worse outbreak than we've witnessed to date as communities accepted that the government wasn't coming to help them and found ways to provide for each other and themselves. But this this isn't a public health strategy, you write. Citizens acting in the absence of government cannot outrun the consequences of a government acting in contradiction to the interests of the people. Uh, just want to see if you, you know, I mean, that's a couple months back, looking back on those words. Um, anything different or better or it still seems kind of the same, people having to sort of ad hoc their way out of this through community resilience? Absolutely. I mean, the real superstars in Kenya um, have been the community health workers and operating, you know, going door to door. And this is something that the head of the Africa CDC observed very early on, you know, when there was this um, un, sort of unjustified wave of anxiety about will Africans be able to get vaccinated? And it's like, we've been doing door-to-door -door vaccinations since as time immemorial. I've had all of my vaccinations from a community health, except for, you know, the newborn ones, but like my polio vaccine, the vaccinator came to the house, um, you know, measles, the person that they come to the house and they go to the most remote villages in this country. So when the Kenyan government wants you to get vaccinated, you will get vaccinated. Um, so the community health workers have been the superstars in this period that they have been doing awareness without um, a lot of funding, without a lot of support, doing door to door, um, doing radio. And it's that's been the, the thing that's stopped us from spiraling, I think, um, because we certainly haven't treated our doctors very well. We certainly haven't treated our nurses very well. As we speak, the government is in the middle of a campaign to sell, you know, for lack of a better word, nurses to the United Kingdom. They entered a special deal where the UK would provide, would um, uh, hire, you know, nurses from Kenya as if we have the spare capacity, you know, as if we can afford to lose a thousand, two thousand nurses because the UK has lost so many um, because of the pandemic. So. It's been, the community health workers have been that buffer and people organizing, supporting each other. Um, social scientists call Kenya a dual system. So, and I write a little bit about this in, in Digital Democracy, that because of the way um, the colonial structure was put in place, most of us have one foot in an urban context and one foot in a rural context. That's another um, phenomenon that's really been a buffer so that a lot of people, have a place that they could go where they're not paying rent 
and they're not um, they're living on a slightly less cash intensive uh, context. So you know the mass exodus that happened during the first second lockdown, a lot of people didn't come back, um, didn't come back to the urban context because you know you can work the land. It's less there's less you know there's less. Um, amenities and things like that, but you are not paying rent, you are, you know, not, the overheads are slightly less intensive. And so that dual system has also been a buffer, I think, economically, that a lot of people had somewhere else that they could go um, and not become um, homeless and and, and and all of that. Um, people sending money, you know, remittances, in, in, you know, international uh, remittances, sending money to relatives. I mean, that's something that I think everybody, myself included, we've had to do during this pandemic is to keep someone in another part of the country solvent. Um, and so these are, the, these are the dynamics that I think have buffered people. And that sense of community where you don't have the expectation that the government is going to show up because they haven't shown up in so many different contexts and having this self-help um, drive and this self-help um, sort of, it's, in, it's ingrained in the society. But as I said in that article, it's not sustainable. This is not a community level threat. This is an international level threat. You know, basics of political theory. We live, we leave the state of nature and we enter the state of man so that we can be provided for by our governments. And to have this disproportionate um, taking of our rights our freedom of express, our freedom of association, our freedom, you know, of circulation, freedom of movement, and not have a concomitant investment in making public health work, I think is a gross violation of the very basic principles of government and governance. And I think that frustration endures, that frustration of why am I looking out for myself when I pay taxes, when I, um, you know, have given up all of these freedoms in order to live in an organized society. I was talking about this tension just the other day with a psychologist in, in Ireland, Orla Muldoon, and we're talking about this tension between um, you know, community level uh, solidarity and, and what you're describing and resourcefulness and this, this dual system where people may they have to move um, at some point, but, but they can find ways to be resourceful, at least for a period of time. Um, and, and yet, and so we want to celebrate that. I mean, I think anywhere in the world where we find people in solidarity, we're like, great. But on the other hand, it just as you're saying, it's like, that's not public health in the way that it needs to function, particularly in an epidemic or, or a pandemic. So we find ourselves kind of at cross purposes because you want to celebrate that resourcefulness. But at the same time, as you say, it's not, it's not ultimately sustainable is that i mean is that a long-standing tension in kenya maybe help me understand a little bit kind of the inheritance of this problem in kenya it is and in my assessment it the so then our national motto in the country is harambe and harambe uh, it's got a contentious history but um the trans the translation that we are offered is let us pull together and from independence 1963, there was this ethos of community action being the driving force of the Kenyan political identity, that people would come together at a local level um, and address local level problems. And so um, Harambe also has its roots in African socialism, which is Kenya's official um, 
ideology and the way Kenyatta the first um, interpreted African socialism was that it was capitalist with socialist characteristics. So how that has played out historically is that there is capitalist uh, in accumulation in um, you know uh, monetization of everything and and all of that stuff and socialist in expect in abandoning, um, responsibility, abdicating responsibility, the central state abdicating its responsibilities. And so the in practical terms, I think it really, the the stark, um, the division sort of between these two, or the contradiction really starts to take root. In the 1990s, um, at the end of the Cold War, um, the end of, you know, Kenya sided with the West. Um, and at the end of the Cold War, you had this massive con contraction in foreign aid, um, the end of the one-party state, the end of the dependency economy, and um, the services start to collapse everywhere. Suddenly, there's you, you can't drink the tap water. You know, the public schools are falling apart. Uh, the public universities are falling apart. You can't, the big, the largesse of this um, one-party regime cannot be sustained um, after the end of, of the Cold War. And structural adjustment obviously as well you know these large cuts to public spending in the in the country the first victim is always health education nobody ever says let's cut the military budget <laughs> let's spend less on guns um it's always health it's always yeah, education it's always the things that people actually use and so in that contraction self-help becomes a much more urgent um, um ethos that in order to go to university, people have, we call them harambees, you know, people have to put money together to send kids to university. When someone gets sick, the hospital bill is too high. We have a harambe, we pay for this person to um, get healthcare. When, whenever there's a thing that needs a systemic response, instead, people opt for self-help um, because of that experiencing that contraction. And I think right now it's really embedded in the way the society functions that, um, the expectations of the government are so low, um, even though we're the taxes remain incredibly high, and um, you know we still we are the need remains, but the expectations are so low. People aren't uh, attuned to, you know, maybe we need to have a much more con you know uh, coordinated response to this. Right now in Nairobi, I mean, and I would say that I'm not an outlier. This happens everywhere. Private water supply private security guards, private um, generators for electricity. Um, if you are middle class and above, this is the reality. You buy water every week. And yet the taxes still come. Mm -hmm. You still have to pay the National Health Insurance Fund uh, a percentage of your earnings. You still have to pay you know, the, the county council for water collection, for garbage collection. So there's this weird um space this duality that makes these kinds of developments possible that the national health insurance fund which is a mandatory fund that takes um i think it's like two percent out of everybody's salary will say we are not going to cover covid hospitalization unilaterally and there be no public pushback against that well we'll just have a harambe many people who have had people in hospital the COVID bills are coming to about $20,000 for people who survive. If you get intubated, you know, and, and you happen to survive, I think the survival rate for intubation is like 10%. Right. Um, $20,000 in a country where the minimum wage is $50 a month. 
So people have been paying for that through collective action. It's not sustainable. It's not sustainable. And and the the, the burden, the tension, you know, it plays out um, people opting out of society, I think, has a much more significant impact than just the material conditions that we live in. There is also a psychological impact that it has on our sense of community and our sense of belonging and our sense of statehood. And this is what I think makes one of the things that I think makes Kenyan statehood so fragile. Mm. Everybody's looking out for themselves, even while the burden of extraction from the government remains omnipresent. Um, So this is the, the reality that we're living in right now, that the pandemic just kind of exacerbates this history of you know, I don't like it, but I'm going to keep paying the government, even though I know that they're not going to show up. I'm not happy about it, but I'm going to keep playing along because that's what my parents did. That's what my grandparents did. Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Nanjala Niabala today about COVID and Kenya. And I want to, uh, Nanjala, come to discussion of your book, Digital Democracy, Analog Politics, How the Internet Era is Transforming Politics in Kenya. It came out in 2018. Uh, and everybody should grab this book. And um, it's gotten tremendous reviews. Um, I, I wonder how you view that book now we sort of refracted back through the the lens of COVID. I mean, it's a, a book that sort of um, explores social media use in Kenya and the ways that politics are transformed through social media. Um, you know, digital divide issues, I think, are on the table as well. Mm-hmm. And, and now we've had this sort of big national crisis, just as you were explaining, yeah. not necessarily a new crisis, um, a continuation of an older crisis, maybe in some, in some ways. Um, how do you see that work now? That's a fantastic question. Um, It's the same in the sense that there's so much good that happened and there's so much bad that happened. And it's one of the difficulties in talking about technology and politics is that everybody is so absolute in their position that it must either be wholly negative or wholly positive. And the reality of Kenya, I think, the experience of Kenya, I think, shows up the reality that it's actually always going to be complicated. It's always going to be half and half or two thirds and a third. It's always going to be a bit of both. So with, with regards to COVID, for example, one of the things I talk about in the book is about the uptake of social media and how the various platforms have become incredibly important to building new ways of being and belonging, building new ways of community. At the very beginning of the pandemic, obviously the overarching concern was misinformation because misinformation has been such a huge problem in the West and has been such a huge obstacle to addressing the pandemic, even in the in the face of so much plenty with regards to vaccines. One of the first things that people did, and they did this entirely voluntarily, entirely um, decentralized, was translating WHO official information into languages other than English. So Kenya, officially bilingual, English, Kiswahili, but also 42 other languages spoken, not to mention many dialects of these languages. And people would 
take the WHO information and voluntarily produce graphics, distribute them on WhatsApp to make sure that the, the, the information on how to protect yourself from COVID was widely available for free to anybody who wanted it. I would say that the initial misinformation window in Kenya was tiny because of a lot of this action that people took, um, realizing that it was it might be a problem. You know, there was a wave right at the beginning. There was people with the high HCQ and the drinking bleach and all of that, because we do get a lot of that secondary blowback and we do have people within the community who are interested in spreading misinformation. So that very quick um, response acting before the problem ar arose has really slowed down the spread of misinformation in this country. And that is the product of some of the uh, energies and some of the, the you know, cultural energies that I identify in the book. So in that regard, that's that's one thing that I would, I would point out. Um, the other thing that I would point out is accountability. And again, I discussed this in the book, that when the curfews started, and there was this very harsh policing of the curfews and informal settlements in poorer communities, People use social media to raise awareness, even while the traditional media was reluctant to cover a lot of these stories. So, for example, there was a day where the government announced the curfew and gave people three hours to get back to the city. A regional lockdown in Nairobi gave people three hours to get back to the city, which, of course, caused a traffic jam of epic proportions. They put a barricade across the main highway and they wouldn't let anybody in or out with the idea being that people would spend the night on the road and that would be a deterrence. Recording this, putting it on social media, creating this um, you know, furor about this particular um, out, this is the reason why they stopped doing that. That telling a story that traditional media wouldn't touch, alerting people to the that were playing out that were then going to be uh, massaged or, or misrepresented on traditional media causing this is, is part of the reason why this policy changed. And this is, again, one of the phenomena I talk about in the book, using social media to demand accountability. Um, but we've also seen the negatives and we've also seen, you know, crackdowns on people who um, uh, are seen to be antagonistic to whatever the government's trying to accomplish. Um, you know, when a corruption scandal is exposed and people are named, you know, fear of intimidation by bloggers, by people who use social media. Um, and like I said, the secondary effects of misinformation in the West, um, that a lot of the misinformation networks, um, I read a, New York, a study in the New York Times that said the number one driver of misinformation in the United States was Donald Trump. And a lot of those stories find their way onto Kenyan uh, uh, bloggers and, you know, even the traditional media. And there's a knock-on effect on that. When there was a run on HCQ on hydrochloroquine, mm -hmm. um, the shortage, this was in Kenya, this was in Uganda, meant that lupus sufferers couldn't access, you know, this medicine that they need to stay alive. There's a knock-on effect to that misinformation. So I think that the book holds up really well. I mean, it, it has only been three years. <laughs> But I think the book holds up really well. And I, I hope that people read it um, not as here's this weird thing that's happening on the other side of the world, but as here is an example of how information rooted in specific historical, cultural, cultural political contexts behaves. And this is how we should, what the things that we should be paying attention to as we think about managing information in the digital age. Um, 
I think the COVID pandemic has reinforced a lot of the lessons and the ideas that I put out in the book. And for me personally, it's just been like um, re reaffirming, you know, of of the arguments and the the theories and the ideas that that came from it. Well, and you said you know it's a it's a recent book, and so it it should hold up. And yet, a lot of times, you know, disaster and war. It it will change the way that even quite recent social science looks. And but what you're describing is an extension of the work, not in any way a refutation of it. I think your publisher is going to need to bring it back out in a, another edition with an epilogue. And um, and and I wanted to ask, just ask one follow up: is, is maybe you could tell me like how powerful state media is there? Because I mean, what we're seeing in the United States is now, and and this is not really happening yet um, in. It, well, it's happening to a lesser extent in South Korea, but in the United States, you know, major, you know, mainstream news organizations now are fully enmeshed with social media. And so social media, it I wouldn't go so far as to say it completely drives the news cycle. But when Donald Trump had a Twitter feed, it absolutely drove the news cycle. And so and that was a big time in the pandemic. And so this idea that we can say, well, social media is is sort of reaching this population and traditional legacy media is reaching this population. I'm not sure those boundaries hold up so well anymore and i wonder how you assess that porosity there in kenya sure um i will say one thing one of the most problematic developments in the united states news landscape has been the commercialization of news that information is way more of a commodity in the united states than it is in many other jurisdictions and the thing that makes the biggest difference i would say is the presence of a well-funded, well-supported public broadcaster, which the United States doesn't have, right? NPR, right. Um, PBS all depend on donors. Um, it's for all of its problems, for all of its issues, and the BBC, especially under the uh, Johnson administration has had a lot of issues. The presence of the BBC, the presence of Deutsche Welle in Germany, the presence of all of these well-funded public broadcasters um, is important. And it's a public service that's important to addressing this bifurcate, not even bifurcation, it's like atomization of news media. The difference between a person who gets their information on social media and a person who gets their information from buying a newspaper is that a person who is reading social media is reading curated information. So it's they're not getting the 360, they're getting, might get a deep dive into like 30% of what's happened in the world today, but they're not getting a 360 of how all these things connect to each other. And that's part of that's what a, a big broadcaster is supposed to do is supposed to give you not just the information, but the context in which the information um, is produced. So this is a we're in a very strange place in Kenya in that we do have a public broadcaster. Um, the public broadcaster is the only uh, no, it has the second widest coverage. There's a private uh, broadcaster that has recently superseded them, but 78 percent coverage of the national territory. It's astounding, right? No other, we've had the atomization of radio. Most Kenyans get their information from the radio. Uh, we have 116 radio stations. Wow. And, um, and that's not even like community radio. That's just the ones that are private licenses. We have about 30 television stations. I have to double check that number. But only two of these broadcasters have anything come that comes close to national coverage. And that is the national broadcaster, KBC, 
and the Citizen Media, which is a private uh, a broadcaster. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's it's kind of like an in-between thing in that um, people, there are still few enough Kenyans relative to the size of the population who are online. And there's still enough geographical concentration around specific places, Nairobi, Mombasa, Kisumu, Nakuru, that there isn't this overwhelming dependence on social media the way that you see in the United States. It doesn't yet drive the news agenda the way it does in the US. However, it does have a significant impact. I call the the, the network effect and the amplification effect. Mm -hmm. The network effect in that the urban, in urban contexts especially, you do see that. You see television stations relying on what's trending online to give them content, to give them something to talk about. So you, you do see that symbiosis between those two things. And then the other thing is once they do that, then amplifying it and putting it you know, in front of people who are not on social media, who don't have Facebook, who don't have Twitter, who are not on WhatsApp and whatever. Um, the thing that's going to make the biggest change, I think, in the next five years is WhatsApp, because WhatsApp is now bundled free um, whenever you buy a smartphone in the country. I see. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be an issue um, moving forward because more and more people are going to be dependent on their networks and and there's increasing attention being paid to this why do you believe something that's sent to you by someone that you trust you know that's what that's that's how information travels in whatsapp it's people that you have in your contact list it's not like you know uh, there's a i don't know if you saw this pew study i put it in um digital democracy that most people who are on twitter are talking to people they don't know and that has a moderating effect on belief, on their people are, are almost primed to be a little bit more skeptical. Because mm-hmm. I don't know that person. Doesn't, right. It's not 100% guarantee, but it's there. Whereas WhatsApp, it's people who are in your contact list. Right. You know, so you're primed for belief and you're primed to go along with the mis- with whatever they put in your inbox. And it's that discrepancy as WhatsApp becomes more popular that I think is going to be worth paying attention to. How is this going to affect how, and 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 is it is it, how is it going to affect how we receive and process information? And will we see the same amplification network effect with traditional media? Given that you can't measure virality on WhatsApp, you can't measure how far the information has traveled on WhatsApp. Right. So yeah, I think those are the things that I would we should be paying attention to. Talking to Nanjala Niabala today on COVID calls, I want to come to um, discussion of your most recent book, Traveling While Black Essays Inspired by a Life on the Move, and um, came out in the pandemic. Uh, <laughs> you're one of the authors I've talked to who's had a book come out and, and try to figure out how do, you, how do you promote a book while you're there Don't in, your, recommend it. in your apartment. <laughs> you're not the first to tell me that. Um, <laughs> Uh, I just want to say, I mean, this is a magnificent book, and and I, to to me, I mean, I love reading travel writing. I love traveling, but I mean, this is also like this book. It, a travel is like a, I think, is a form of consciousness for you. I mean, that's that's how I read it, and, and not only for you, but also consciousness raising for readers mm-hmm. like myself. But I, I want to, you know, I want to start with 
what for me was um, an important part of reading this book in which you explain travel guides. Yeah. And you know, I'm reading and I'm reading this and I'm thinking, how many Lonely Planet guides do I have on my bookshelf? And I why do like those books? <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. And and it's and and you can I'll let you'll explain it, of course, beautifully, but but I thought, you know, these books always made so much sense to me. They were reaching me at a at a level that was deeper than like, here's what to go see when you go to Rome. Right. And but I don't think I ever fully understood that because I'd never asked the hard questions about those books. And you did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, like I I have like 20. You can't see them. They're all the way up there. But I started to ask questions when I started to travel more regularly in Africa. Um, just like like most people, when we grew up with a yearning for travel, there's the quintessential places that are romanticized in fiction and in history. I got to go to Paris. I have to go to New York. I have to go to London. I have to, there's like, you know, when you consume popular culture and you decide that that's an entry point of how you're going to think about travel, there are places that sort of populate your list. So started to do that and said, I'm not having the same experience, but okay, it's probably just me. I'm probably just being weird. But when I started traveling in Africa is when the questions really start to, to coalesce. Um, because it just becomes really obvious that there are things that I'm seeing, that I'm feeling, that I'm being made to feel, that the book is skipping over or ignoring altogether. And in so doing, kind of giving us a very um, narrow experience um, and, you know, exposing people to some kinds of risks and, and at the same time being very cruel to a lot of places in the world. So, you know, the opening paragraph in The Lonely Planet for Nairobi, um, and I'm not a person who romanticizes Nairobi at all. I know that this is a challenging town. However, it is also, it's a big town and big towns are challenging places. Um, there's a lot of wonderful stuff that happens in Nairobi. And Lonely Planet basically says, you know, don't don't plan to spend any time there. Get in and out as quickly as you can. Um, you're probably going to get robbed. Like I'm paraphrasing, but that's that's the gist of it. And I remember reading that and thinking, really, you found something nice to say about New York and all its rats, and Paris and its crowds, and the trash, you know, Naples, but you couldn't find anything nice to say about a city of 5 million people that is a capital city, that is a cultural hub, that is, you know, significant. And it's a place that people call home. And that's, those are the kind of discrepancies that started to gnaw at me because it was like, well, what would a person have experienced in order to have this viewpoint of travel guides? It's a very gendered and very racialized uh, genre of writing. And we have more, and, and it's not and it's not necessarily because there hasn't been a history of people writing. Um, you know, there was a recent um, uh, viral thread about, I mean, viral amongst history nerds. It's not gonna be viral against everybody, but mm. about uh, Moroccan uh, Berber, uh, he was officially a guide to a French explorer in the 17th century, but actually wrote his own travel uh, recollections and as they moved through the Maghreb. And um, so it's not that it's new that we've been writing, that people have been writing 
travel memories. It's that the industry, the 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 way in which the power brokers and the gatekeepers interpret travel writing is this Hemingway, you know, explorer. Let's go out and see what the savages are up to. Um, and and for me, that has never been the point of travel. I I think discovery as a paradigm can be a very um, it it can lock in power dynamics that are unjust to the communities that are experienced. And um, when communicated to other audiences, I think it can be constraining. You're not you're not an explorer. You're not going to go off and discover you know Indiana Jones temple of doom things because you were in Nairobi for two days. But you might go to a nice art gallery and you might have a nice walk, you know, and it's that framing that I wanted people to really sit with the discomfort of what this explorer mentality is doing to the way people expect to experience the world, particularly when they travel in places like Nairobi, like Johannesburg, like Sao Paulo. It's a particularly poignant now, uh, I mean, and throughout the pandemic, as people who, who have been able to to try to move around have faced um, various restrictions. And, and, you know, even in the earlier part of the pandemic, when people were, there was a sort of a culture of um, elite escape. And this has a very old mm-hmm. history. Um, mm-hmm. And so it even sort of double and triply reinforces some of the observations that you're that you're making there. But I mean, you, you write not only about, you know, travel as um, exploration, but you also talk about the movement of people yeah. and, and borders. And yeah. um, I want to just, I'm just going to read um, uh, just one little section here. You actually talk about your own experience of visas and, and you say visas are cruel and unusual invention. They are, a, what a great line. They're a reminder of the human's near infinite capacity to invent things out of thin air and then reorder their lives completely around it, including their measure of the value of human life. And, and the, I mean, that's one chapter where you talk about your own experience of facing basically racism and trying to get a visa. But you also talk about, um, you talk about the sort of um, the emergence, you know, of the encampment and, and the sort of global disaster now of migration, which has turned from migration to asylum to encampment. I mean, the, yeah. so all of that, again, sort of filtered through COVID. Um, yeah. Just an important yeah. set of observations. So uh, maybe you can expand a little bit on that on that visa issue you well, had. You know, what's really interesting is at the very beginning of the pandemic in, I actually wrote the last uh, draft of the book while I was in Italy. And I left Italy like a week before their first COVID cases. Um, and I've kind of had this one month period in February where I was like one step ahead of the pandemic. So I left Italy and I went to DC and then sort of like, and that, and that feeling of the borders closing. Cause when I left Italy, I couldn't go back. And when I left the United States, there was a border closure, I couldn't go back. And then um, went to South Africa and they had their first case like a day before I got there when I left South Africa, couldn't go back and then was on lockdown until this year. Um, a lot of people don't know, and this is to speak to the to the um, issue, is European countries, North American countries have not been issuing tourist visas since last year. Um, they stopped 
allowing, at first it was only citizens who were allowed to go back, and then it was only people who were traveling for work reasons um, and long-term reasons. So like the US embassy in Nairobi is only doing student visas, uh, migration visas, green cards and things like that. And I've had two Americans with um, Kenyan partners sort of reach out to me and be like, hey, uh, is this typical because I want my partner to come over for Thanksgiving? Um, is it typical that it's going to take six months for uh, to get an appointment? I was like, oh, six months isn't typical, but three months, yeah. If you're if you're looking for a visa, three months is a is a normal wait time. And I was like, what? You wait three months to get a visa? And I was like, yeah, that's been the case since time immemorial we don't just walk into the embassy and say hey give me visa there's like a six month process to it and i think this experience of the lockdown has brought so many of these things to the attention of people who right. otherwise took it for granted europeans right. especially because europeans have been banned from the u.s for the last year and a bit um and i get a lot of this from european people it's like I didn't realize that this was the thing that governments did. And I said, well, yeah, um, I can't just walk into an embassy in Europe. Even if I have all of my documentation, they might still say no. And they do say no for arbitrary reasons. Um, so in some ways, I think there's a slightly keener awareness that travel rules can be incredibly arbitrary, that your nationality is not a guarantee of anything. I was listening to the news the other day as well that um, the Russian government banned the U.S. embassy from hiring Russians at the U.S. embassy in Moscow. And so what the U.S. government did in response is that they stopped issuing visas in Moscow. And now if you want to get a, a U.S. visa, you have to travel to Krakow. You have to go to Poland. Mm -hmm. And so there's this big diplomatic brouhaha that's been brewing between the U.S. And, and Russia that you have to go to another country to apply for a visa. And I was like... That's been the case. If you are from Burundi, if you are, well, Burundi has an embassy, but you know, if you are from Burundi and you want a Canadian passport, a visa, you have to come to Kenya. If you are from Benin and you want a British passport, you have to go to Nigeria. This is how we live. And so this is something that's been, I mean, like, there's a I'm not gonna lie to you, there's a bit of Schadenfraud in that, you know, like sure. yeah. yeah. But it's also to make it bigger, why I've been paying attention to this whole vaccine passport thing. Right. I am not against the idea of verification of vaccination credentials. Absolutely. I, you know, I have a yellow fever certificate. You have to show it every time you enter and leave certain countries. Measles, MMR, you have to show it when you enter mm -hmm. and leave uh, places where the disease is a problem. What I'm against is that people are not thinking critically about what it means to make this the norm when most of the world still does not have access to vaccines and that there is a systematic effort to make sure that that access is not achieved in the fastest and most humane way. This is how the visa thing plays out because when the UK announced two weeks ago that you had to be fully vaccinated to enter the UK. So if it's a one dose vaccine, Johnson Johnson, fine. Um, if it's the two dose that you've received uh, two doses. The fine print in that was they were ex only accepting four, 
out of the seven vaccines that have been approved by the WHO. Right. They were for the India vaccine, Covishield vaccine, I think it's Covishield, the AstraZeneca vaccine as produced in the United Kingdom is identical to the AstraZeneca vaccine as produced in India, but they were not recognizing the vaccine that's produced in India as a valid vaccine, which meant, and that is the vaccine that that is available in most of the rest of the world. Canada did the same thing. The EU did the same thing. Like, it's, for me, it just goes back to this thing that I was writing about, how we have this infinite capacity to come up with rules that reflect our own biases and predilections and that are not rooted in creating a more just world, but in upholding inequality and exclusion. And and so I wanted, I was like, you know, what is, nobody's asking what's the most just way that we can put in place this policy so that it upholds the public health imperative, but doesn't normalize inequality. We are in a moment where the momentum is for exclusion and especially exclusion of non-white populations. For me, the, there's a line that connects what we saw in the Haiti, in Bo- Haitians being rounded up on the Mexico border, the cages on the Mexico border, the boat returns in the South Pacific, the Rohingya uh, encampment, the Somali encampment in Kenya, the death in the Mediterranean Sea, there is a line that unites those things, this growing anxiety of, around the other and the, the black other, the brown other. And that discourse being omnipresent in the context of a pandemic, what will migration policy look like? Every time it pops up, it seems to conform to that logic. And that's what I want people to pay attention to. I've been paying attention to migration. That's what that yep. chapter is about. It's that... Yep. Look, I could write you this long essay about, you know, history policy, but I'm going to tell you what it feels like to be in one of the bodies that lives and and to be one of the people that endures. And I'm telling you, there's no rationale to it other than the fact that I fit the profile. I fit the box of exclusion. And so it then becomes my job to prove that I am worthy enough to be exempted from that instinct of exclusion. That's what I'm hoping people will pay attention to. And it's difficult because all the anti-vax nuts are kind of taking up all the oxygen and and making it seem like the problem is the vaccine. And I was like, no, 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 no. There's a qualitative difference, that a narrow issue that I think we have to be very pay a lot of attention to. Because once the UK does that and it becomes accepted, you can bet in two years India will be doing it to other African countries. African countries will be doing it to each other. It will become the norm. That exclusion. So I feel very strongly about this. I could go on all day. <laughs> no, I mean, I, and, and I can listen to it all day. And I, and I think, um, uh, can you spare five more? Can we talk a few more minutes? You need to, okay. Um, because it, I mean, you wrote about the things you're just t- talking about, you wrote about in a Washington Post piece, which just came out a couple of weeks. And so you're talking about the, so you're extending the book, I think, and really bringing it into this sort of, um, UK travel policies, and one of the things that you that's so powerful about that op-ed um, is just this logic that you're that you're saying. Like, who could argue with the logic that a uh, vaccine passport is the way to go? 
I mean, on the face of it, it seems, you know, and, and to be against such a thing, as you say, is culturally very challenging because you're very easily now people say, well, wait a minute, is, he's, is he an anti-vax? What's his deal with that? And so they push you over here. Um, and so there's a lot of nuance. You need people's attention at least for a few seconds to explain it. Yeah. But as you point out, you know, the minute the UK says, yeah, you got to have these vaccines, these approved vaccines and every other country is out. Oh, and by the way, intellectual property of mRNA vaccines is locked yeah. up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and we have no attention for that to reach the rest of the world. So sorry, countries that can't produce your own vaccine, we're building a system in which you can't come in. And I yeah. think the double irony there, and I think your editors at the Post didn't give you enough time with this, is that um, countries like South Korea, uh, and maybe even Kenya, that have been resourceful in different ways in managing the um, that kept the death rates low. They've done that without vaccination. Yeah. I mean, this the vaccine it. rate here has soared in South Korea in the last two months, but the majority of this pandemic has been done with, with non-vaccine methods of public health. And right. just as you were describing. Yeah. And this is, it's, this is the thing is that what is seen as labor, what is seen as public health, what is seen as, as controlling this disease is being determined in political processes that are not reflective of outcomes. So the UK is making, is driving the migration and vaccine passport conversation. And you think, well, how, why did the pandemic get out of control in the UK? Was it because of the vaccine passports or were there other policy questions? You know, we talk about corruption um, with the tra track and test system. We talk about opening up too early. We talk about the delays in providing vaccinations for teenagers and things like that. There are structural issues that are bigger than just foreigners coming into the United Kingdom and making uh, British people sick. It wasn't foreigners coming into the United Kingdom that led to all of these systemic policy failures. So to put the burden on migration policy and to have it be loaded with all of this momentum. Right now, the minister, the, the Home Office, uh, Priti Patel, is pushing to end asylum in the United Kingdom, right? This is one of the things that she's been pushing this week. She wants there to, uh, the idea that anybody who seeks asylum is trying to game the UK system. That's the, that is part of the context. That is part of should we say nothing, therefore, when the policy rolls out that says only these four vaccines produced by private commercial entities? Moderna has been around for 11 years. This is the first year that they turned a profit. And it's such an absurd profit relative to... Um, it's the one of the, I, I don't know, I, I remember looking at the, at the graph and seeing the, the dramatic increase in Moderna's profit. Yeah. Moderna didn't start giving vaccines, has not officially sold vaccines to any African countries or any poor countries, but all the Moderna that's available in poor countries is donations that have come from the United States. So there is a commercial interest that's embedded in saying there are these four vaccines that we are going to accept. There's a geopolitical interest that's saying we're not going to recognize the Chinese vaccines. Yeah, the Chinese vaccines are less, less um, effective, 65%. But I understand from public health, from doctors, we eradicated polio with a vaccine that was only 50% um, effective. So they're not perfect. What we're preventing is grave illness 
um, hospitalization. And for that, it is good enough. So there's a geopolitical interest there that's also worth thinking about. And we um, are stuck in the middle. And it's not about, for me, it's not even about the actual act of traveling. It's not even about, you know, we want to preserve. It's about the stigma. It's about the narrative becoming normalized that if we manage to contain this disease in a geographical context, then we say it's a disease of those people because that's what happened with HIV AIDS. Once it became a poor country disease, it became almost synonymous with certain geographical areas. It's right. a problem in India, it's a problem in Africa. This is what we're trying to prevent. It's not going to just be about travel, it's going to be about perception. It's going to be about, um, it's gonna have a knock-on effect on how people understand other people and stigmatize other people. The head of the Africa CDC, I've, he said this in an interview and I've never forgotten it because it's, I think he's, he's now moving to go and head up PEPFAR um, so I, he knows these things. And he said, they will vaccinate, put in place travel restrictions, and then Africa will become the continent of COVID. That's the momentum that we're trying to stop. It's nothing to do with anti-vax or whatever. It is, we don't want to become the continent of COVID. But the sum total of denying us vaccines, stigmatizing vaccines, putting place arbitrary hierarchies of vaccines, making it impossible for people to make vaccines, that's the anxiety that that's where we're going to end up. So just to circle back to your book, Traveling While Black, I mean, I think this is also part of the power of it is, I mean, you write about travel, but you write about the foreclosure of travel too, mm -hmm. and the restriction of movement. And, and I think that, you know, a, a book like this forces us to bring, you just said it a minute ago, you sort of, you got to bring into the same frame that, um, you know, you, you might be able to get on a plane and, as, as you describe in the book, go to Haiti. And you might be able to pull that off. Um, but that has to come with some responsibilities also. Yeah. And, and I think that that's not just Haiti. I mean, I think that's probably travel anywhere in the world. Travel to the United States. Travel to, to Italy. You are going to see, if you're looking, um, yeah. many of the issues that you've just been describing. And I, I mean, I just have to, to say, like, I'm a disaster researcher. So when I travel and my, my family, sometimes they put up with this. But when we travel, we're going to go and, and we're going to go to disaster sites. And we're going to look at sites where there have been human rights <laughs> wow. issues. And we're going to go to war zones. And we're going to go to the DMZ and do this kind of stuff. And um, you know, my kids probably <laughs> travel. Has been wow, that sounds like fun, Dad. Yeah. Well, <laughs> actually, you would love to travel with me. And I would love to travel with you. I think for that reason, but it, but it's that it's that that's a deeper sense of what travel enables. Yeah. But I think again, by reading your book, it's like, it just, I think it's, I'm, my hope, I guess, coming out of COVID is that we, you said a moment ago, some schadenfreude, maybe we can call it a teachable moment, but people need to read works like this and realize that we have an opportunity yeah. um, in this moment. Again, if we got people's attention just for a few extra minutes, because their travel was made more difficult because of COVID, this is a moment you got to shake them by the lapels and make them understand. Am I overstating I, it? I, I no, think no, I'm no, not. no, no, no. I think I think that's absolutely right. I think that's absolutely true, and that's that's the thread that I was talking about. That we have to unite that these factors and show people in this moment where you know there's a little bit less movement, there's a little bit we can have a global attention on one thing that we can actually also say, this is how this connects to other things. Um, the stigmatization of 
entire communities. Um, you know, people aren't turning Haitians away because they've done in-depth one-to-one interviews with each Haitian person and then said, well, actually your case is not valid. There is a wholesale deportation of Haitians that's happening because they are Haitians. Right. There is a wholesale deportation that's happening of people of Guatemala because they are from Guatemala. And in Kenya, wholesale deportation of Somali refugees because they're Somali. It's not a, it's uh, people building walls. There, uh, there's an econom- economist graphic about the number of co- all the countries that are building walls right now, border walls right now. It's become the new trend for, for countries to build walls to co- as an effort of controlling uh, mobility and stigmatizing entire populations, Zimbabweans in South Africa, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that it's not overstating it to say that we have to pay attention. So many of the evils that happen in the world happen because bad people take opportunities and good people aren't paying attention. And I think that lack of attentiveness is, but it's, 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 there's, it's a malevolent thing. It's a, you have a privilege for this to not be urgent for you because you can circumvent it. So you don't pay attention to it, even though it's going to have, it's going to have a knock-on effect in other people. This is the kind of things that I want people to pay attention to. Um, And that's kind of why I put it in a travel book, because I knew that people were looking for inspirational stories about how each pray love and I had passed in Italy and it changed my life. And I was like, well, no, you know, it, I, I could. I, 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 like I said, I wrote the book in Italy. I was in, in Airbnb in Bologna, drinking wine and putting on weight. But um, like you, for me, I, I, I can't unsee. I couldn't unsee, you know, the people who were the homeless people sitting outside the restaurants and um, assuming, you know, and hearing them not speak Italian and knowing that they had come from somewhere else. Yeah. I couldn't unsee the inequality that was all around. And it is professionally primed to look at to look for these things and to see these things but i think also in writing and in looking at the pandemic i couldn't not see because i'd seen it in travel in other con- contexts i could not see what was coming down the pipeline um and n- knowing and having lived through the hiv aids pandemic having lost family to hiv aids knowing how easily stigma gets created normalized geographically bound, not wanting people to do that again because of this malevolent um, laziness or apathy that that can take root. So I don't think it's overstating it at all. I think it's so weird when you read history books, you, you can have the impression that history is always a big thing and there's, you know, one big thing that happens. But those of us who work with history in different contexts, we know that that's just the books it's every it's a it's like a slow burn crises often it's like a slow slow burn and it's just trying to stop it before the momentum becomes too great we're up on time and i've been very greedy with your time actually but it's been a tremendous conversation and i just would like a tiny question on the way out which is when you're freed from this covid trap and i know we're talking about travel, but also the restriction of travel. But where do you want to go next? Ooh. What's drawing I, you? Yeah. <laughs> I want to go to all the places. Um, I have to be honest. I started traveling um, in June. So I've been 
uh, I went to the States to get vaccinated because we didn't have any vaccines in Kenya. Um, So I have been traveling a little bit. the last place, the, the last place that I went to for leisure um, before the pandemic was Mexico City, mm. and I had wanted to go back to Mexico um, because it's really a very singular place in the world. Um, the food, the culture, the history, the it's just a remarkable place. And so, the dream would be, you know, a month in Mexico, um, eating tacos and drinking beers and um, just being around such a, a amazing history. So mm-hmm. that would be the dream. And writing the follow-up. Uh, writing this, the follow-up. This book, I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I want we're going to draw to a conclusion now. I would be remiss if I didn't give a shout out to anthropologist Adia Benton, who yeah. uh, helped facilitate this meeting today. And she's been a, a, a guest host uh on COVID calls and she's uh, tremendous and i'm a huge fan of hers so um thank you adia for this and um i just want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls you can usually catch COVID calls at 6 p.m eastern time today was a special call at 7 p.m korea time 1 p.m uh nairobi time and the book um among her books with the one you can check out most recently published traveling while black essays inspired by a life on the move by nanjala niabala Um, Thanks for this time today. I really learned a lot in the conversation. Good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls. Mm